sometimes I hear people calling for revival in terms of the rediscovery of our first love based on the text in Revelation 3 with regard to the church at Ephesus where they have lost their first love. And uh, I never resonate with those calls. Never. Because that's just not the way my Christian life has worked. And I've wondered whether I should say this. This just comes to my mind now. Uh, that there may be others like me who, whose pilgrimage is not such that your greatest love was your first love. Why should that be the case? <laughs> I mean, that is a very dangerous assumption that the love you want to have corresponds to the first year of your Christian life. There's nothing biblical about that assumption. Now, in Ephesus, evidently, there was a lot of powerful, wonderful love in that first experience, but it wasn't so with me. I was six. I was six years old when I was converted. Six-year-olds don't have a great capacity to feel mighty religious affections and appropriate the glories of God. I do not hark back to the first ten years of my Christian life as the golden era. All right? So I just mention that to say to you when when you sing those songs or when you hear people say, oh, God, restore our first love. And you're sitting there saying, I liked last year, not 30 years ago. Last year was a great year. Or I've never had a very great year. That's okay. Revival is not to get you back to year one. Revival is to get you forward to where God appoints for you to be in all the fullness of his spirit. Charles Colson wrote, um, the Western church, much of it drifting and culturated, infected with cheap grace, desperately needs to hear Jonathan Edwards' challenge. It is my belief, he wrote, that the prayers and work of those who love and obey Christ in our world may yet prevail as they keep the message of such a man as Jonathan Edwards. So Chuck Colson and others like him are lifting the banner and saying, check out Jonathan Edwards. I, I join him this morning in saying, check out Jonathan Edwards as a possible antidote to some of the maladies of our day and as a clear note of guidance in a, a morass of confusion on a lot of issues in our day, especially as they surround revival. My understanding is that there are nine unsold copies left in America of the works of Jonathan Edwards in the two-volume Banner of Truth Trust, and we have three of them in the bookstore. And they will probably be gone before this day is over. So if you were contemplating buying that, that that's an investment of what? I don't know, 50, 60 bucks. I don't know what we sell them for. Uh, you'll need to hurry. I understand from Banner of Truth that they will be reissued toward the end of the year. But for now, they are they're out of print. There are paperback books of some of the ones I'll be mentioning this morning down in our bookstore and you can get those, too. Not all of you, of course, should have the big, expensive two-volume work with all the fine print and the double columns. But there are some paperbacks I wish were in every every home in this church and meditated on from time to time.
Let me go back and pick up where I left off about the man that God used to awaken the revival, and then we'll get into some of his own understandings and actually what happened in Northampton, Massachusetts, where he lived. If you weren't here, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton, Massachusetts. He lived from 1703 to 1758 and was a pastor for 23 of those years in Northampton and for eight of those years a missionary to Indians and a pastor of a little rural church in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, where he was writing most of his great works. Most of the people in America don't know that even secular scholars today, University of North Carolina, for example, will say that Jonathan Edwards is the most profound and creative thinker that Protestant America has ever produced. And what's so remarkable about that is that he was a a rural pastor for 31 years of his life, seven of those years way out in the sticks on a frontier mission. Uh, He raised 11 faithful children together with Sarah, whom you'll hear about next week from Noel, Uh, He worked without any electric light or word processors or any quick correspondence, no stale mail or email at all. It was a long time in corresponding. He had seldom enough paper to work on, and he wrote often on the backs of envelopes and other ways, and he died when he was 54. That's uh, not quite five years older than I am. And when he died, there were only 300 books in his library. I have a 1,000 books in my library, and I hardly buy any books anymore. I say that just so that you will grasp the constraints upon a man who is now known 250 years later as the most significant thinker in American church history, or secular history for that matter. He was a remarkable, remarkable person. He was not only the instrument that God used to strike the match of the Great Awakening in New England, he was the Awakening's most significant critic and analyst, that is, the one who thought about it the most, who wrote about it the most. Um, We also don't know, usually, that Edwards had a passion for the Great Commission, he, he wanted his life to count for finishing the Great Commission. And the most significant work that he wrote in that regard was the diary and journal and biography of David Brainerd. I don't know if we have that down there, but everybody should have that. And what made that book so significant is the number of missionaries who, for these 250 years, have benefited from it. People like Francis Asbury, Thomas Coke, William Carey, Henry Martin, Robert Morrison, Samuel Miller, Frederick Schwartz, Robert McChain, David Livingston, Andrew Murray, all of those people say that this diary of David Brainerd had a tremendous impact upon their lives. We all know Jim Elliott, the the martyr in Ecuador, who said uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, and then he did that. Three days before Jim Elliott was killed... This is what he wrote in his journal. Confession of pride suggested by David Brainerd. Now, when he says that, he means Jonathan Edwards' diary of David Brainerd. 
We would not have it had Jonathan Edwards, after the death of David Brainerd at 29, if Jonathan Edwards had not taken time out of his pastoral labors to spend a year or so putting together these journals and these diaries and launching them on a trajectory he never dreamed. He never dreamed what this book would do for helping the Great Commission. Confession of Pride, suggested by David Brainerd's diary yesterday, must become an hourly thing with me. That's Jim Elliott three days before he died, being nurtured and strengthened by Jonathan Edwards' labors 250 years earlier. I could give you quote after quote from missionaries, like I remember one from William Carey on the boat as he was leaving to go to India where he never returned and spent 40 years without a furlough. And he said, today, watching the flying fish, meditating on sermons by Jonathan Edwards, <laughs> studying Bengali. Mark Knoll, who teaches history at Wheaton College and probably knows as much about Edwards as anybody in the evangelical world, wrote this. It's what's written under the picture of Edwards on the wall in my office. Since Edwards, American evangelicals have not thought about life from the ground up as Christians because their entire culture has ceased to do so. So what he's saying is today in America, almost nobody thinks like Edwards. Almost nobody thinks about culture and about business and about arts and about leisure and about science from the ground up with a God-saturated Worldview, Almost nobody. So he says, Edwards' piety, that's his faith and his affections for God, continued on in the revivalist tradition in America. My revivalist tradition, uh, um, Moody and Finney and Sunday and Billy Graham and, and a whole pietistic wing that puts a high premium on conversion and uh, holiness and walking close to God. That stream of evangelicalism and his theology continued on in academic Calvinism. People that were once represented at Princeton Seminary and are now represented at places like uh, Dort and Northwestern College, not this Northwestern, the other Northwestern Calvin College, Calvin Seminary. Um, I mean, other places like the, the, the Christian Reformed Church the PCA, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, these kinds of groups continue on. The Orthodox Calvinism of Edwards and the, the piety of Edwards uh, continue on in the revivalistic tradition that probably most of you have been influenced and nurtured by. And he said, continuing the quote here, but there were no successors to his God-entranced worldview or his profoundly theological philosophy. The disappearance of Edwards' perspective in American Christian history has been a tragedy. That's Mark Knoll's assessment. And uh, I am a little pygmy compared to Jonathan Edwards. Can't think like Edwards, can't read like Edwards, can't speak like Edwards. But I do regard my little pygmy life as an effort to bring those together. That's my life at Bethlehem. That tradition of revivalistic pietistic, heart, warm, personal, loving fervor for God. And this academic 
rigorous, careful understanding of God from a reformed perspective that appreciates and loves his sovereignty to bring those two together into one being and one church and one movement and one body of literature. That's what I hope we're about. A few more comments about the kind of man that God used. He was, and and the reason for spending time on this man is because it may be that God would be pleased to kindle in you these traits that he would in this generation use similarly to awaken his people. He was an incredibly single-minded person. He wrote resolutions when he was 20 years old. One of them, number 61, was resolved that I will not give way to that listlessness which I find unbends and relaxes my mind from being fully and fixedly set on religion, whatever excuse I may have for it. So anything that unbends his mind towards a penetrating analysis of Christianity and its implications for all things, he resists continually. And uh, if he were allowed today with the barrage of unbending influences like television and every other manner of distraction, he would say a lot more, I think. He labored earnestly and continually to know the scriptures. He said, don't get your vision of God secondhand. Here's one of his biographers, quote, he had studied theology not chiefly in systems or commentaries, but in the Bible and in the character and mutual relations of God and his creatures from which all its principles are derived. Now, here's a resolution that he wrote, number 28, which I would like very much to live up to and fail in again and again, I'm afraid. But I'm, I think his life showed that he pretty much obeyed this during his lifetime. Resolved to study the scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. To study the scriptures, three things, constantly, frequently, steadily, such that as time goes by, I look upon my mind and heart as having grown in the understanding of them. Edwards would be very dissatisfied if A year from now, he did not have a year's worth better grasp on the counsel of God in the Bible than he did a year before. And I fear that today there are very few Christians who think in terms of 2 Peter 3.18, where Peter commanded us, grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus. It is not an option for Christians to, to say, I know enough or I've experienced enough. Not to have a passion to grow is to be sick and on a downward slide. So Edwards resolved, I will study the scriptures such that I can perceive that I grow. 
I understand some new things in two weeks and I have an affection for God corresponding to that new understanding that I didn't have two weeks ago. I commend that to you. He was a man who redeemed the time, as Paul says we should. Here's his sixth resolution. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. I I think that's as close to the core of Edward's personality, maybe, as you can get. To live with all my might. How many of us coast? We just coast in our lives. We get up in the morning and we coast. We come home from work and we coast. Where is the passion to redeem, to buy up time and fill it with productive, growing experiences on the edge, to live on the edge? Resolution number five. Resolved. Never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I can. Here's an illustration. There were no little tape recorders like this that I use for dictation. And there were no laptop computers. And uh, everything as far as travel was horseback or carriage or walking. So he traveled a good bit. He'd go from church to church and they'd invite him to preach. He'd go up to Boston for some business and back and be a day or two on the horse. How do you fulfill this on the horse? Resolve not to lose one moment of time, but to improve it. Well, on the horse, he would think and he would read. He would think. And as a new idea came to him about God or about the world or about the revival, he didn't have anything to write it on. But he carried little pieces of paper and pins that his wife provided for him. And he would locate a spot on his coat and associate the spot on his coat with the insight that he'd just gotten. And he would pin a piece of paper there. Didn't have anything on it. Just like a string around your finger. He would pin a piece of paper here. And his wife commented that now and then he would come home and he would be just dotted with these little pieces of paper on his coat. And he'd go to his study and he'd pull this one off and it would all come back and he would write it down. Resolution number 11 was, when I think of any theorem in divinity, that is theology, to be solved. In other words, if you thought of a problem that needed working on, and if, if you read the Bible assiduously, you'll find them almost every day. You know, if you bump into a problem in the Bible, <laughs> you're not the first one to have seen it. And don't throw the faith out. I can remember back in seminary, Dr. Hubbard, this was so, this was like a light going off to me. You know, some guys would come to seminary and, and they would feel like their vocation was to find all the problems in the Bible and all the problems in theology and, and just hammer their teachers with those problems. And, uh, and uh, one time, Dr. Hubbard, we were, we were, he was the president of, of Fuller for a long time, and uh, he, he was commenting after class one day on the attitude of one young man, and he said, you know, <laughs> I feel sorry for this guy because he thinks he's found some hard problems. He hasn't begun to find the hard problems yet. <laughs> <laughs> it 
<laughs> In other words, I've been a Christian now for 40 years, he would say, and I've been struggling to see and penetrate through the difficulties in theology and in scripture. And uh, this young fellow is about to throw away the faith because he's seen two or three. Resolved, when I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved, immediately to do what I can towards solving it if circumstances do not hinder. He did not like procrastination. He didn't like it. He studied at one point in his ministry about 13 hours a day, which would totally get him fired from any church today. He had resolved not to do regular visitation among his people feeling himself unsuited for it and more valuable to the kingdom in his study and his writing. And uh, whether or not that was an accurate judgment and he made the right choice, we'll let God decide. I personally, not being a part of his church, but being a beneficiary of his writings, appreciate the choice that he made. But I'm not sure. He rose early in the morning. No electrical lights in those days. Remember, I think he was not joking when he wrote I think Christ has commended rising early in the morning by rising early from the dead. His biographer said in the evening he usually allowed himself a season of relaxation in the midst of his family before he retired to his study again. However, in 1734, when he was 31 years old, he wrote this. I judge that it is best when I am in a good frame for divine contemplation or engaged in reading the scriptures or any study of divine subjects that ordinarily I will not be interrupted by going to dinner, but will forego my dinner rather than be broke off. In other words, he was so aware of the frame that could come over you when you were engaged with God at a certain moment and things were flowing and you were in a worshipful way, proceeding in your, your study and, and growing and, and getting things on paper that he would not be broke off. He wouldn't be broke off. He wouldn't let it be stopped until it, it lifted. And he would just work right on through because those times were so precious to him. All 11 of his children were faithful to the Lord. So... I am very slow to dictate the way families function in precise ways. I have principles that I want to press home to you in how you care for and love and teach. He taught his children. They knew his theology. But he was with them probably an hour a day, which is what 60 times more than most dads are with their kids today from the statistics that I read. One minute, two minutes Dads focus on their kids. But how do you focus on 11 kids? You know, one is 14, the other's in diapers, and they did come every other year. Boom, 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 just like that for 22 years. Here's one last thing on his uh, discipline. His diet, I mean, just to show how he viewed his life as brief investment in the kingdom, and he would bring everything under control of the Holy Spirit. By a sparingness of diet and eating as much as may be what is light and easy of digestion, I shall doubtless be able to think more clearly and shall gain time. One, by lengthening my life. Two, 
shall need less time for digestion after meals. Three, shall be able to study more closely without injury to my health. Four, shall need less time for sleep. Five, shall more seldom be troubled with the headache. So he experimented. He didn't know anything about nutrition in his day. He experimented with foods to see what worked and what didn't. If it made him sleepy and heavy-headed after he ate, he didn't eat that. And if this quantity did this, he wouldn't eat that. His whole life, all of his appetites for everything were governed by a great goal in his life. For exercise, he would chop wood for half an hour or so in the uh, winter. And in the summer, he would take horseback rides out into the woods and he would walk for a half an hour or so. He did everything for the sake of worship and practical holiness and obedience. He said... The more you have of a rational knowledge of divine things. Now, this was in defense of gaining a rational knowledge of divine things. The more you have of a rational knowledge of divine things, the more opportunity will there be when the spirit shall be breathed into your heart to see the excellency of these things and to taste the sweetness of them. Do you get that? Go ahead, even when your frame, that's his language, your frame is not as energetic and vibrant and vital and emotional and affectionate. Go ahead and study and learn about God factually from the scriptures so that when the spirit begins to move on your life, he has that with which to kindle fire. He doesn't do it out of nothing. The Holy Spirit inspired the Bible so that he could inspire you with the Bible. And if you don't stock your mind with the Bible, he has no kindling to set fire to. Truth is the kindling of the fire of worship and adoration and warmth towards God. So don't think that if there's a season in your life where the fire is low, that God doesn't have a, a great worshipful work for you to do. That's a season for going ahead and in a disciplined way, growing in your understanding and your grasp of divine things so that when the season of reviving comes, he has something to work with. This is the, the Calvinistic reason for personal evangelism. The reason you tell people the gospel is not because you save. But because the Holy Spirit saves with truth. The Holy Spirit does not save people without truth. So you must put truth, gospel truth, into people's minds. And the Holy Spirit awakens hearts to truth. And therefore, if we say, well, the Holy Spirit does it, and I'm Calvinist, and God saves people, and I don't. And you keep your mouth shut, he won't. He won't. If we don't reach the unreached, they won't be saved. If you don't talk to your neighbor, they may not know the gospel and he won't save people without the gospel. But it's the spirit, the sovereign spirit of God that quickens hearts to believe the truth, both in us and in those we speak to. Let's get to the revival here. What happened? 1734 is the key year. From 1734... Till about 1749, there was what's called the Great Awakening in New England, and it spread from Maine to Georgia, 
and it swept back and forth, up and down, seasons up for a couple of years, down for a year or two, up for a couple of years, down for years, for about those 15 years, called the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. The second one came 100 years later, and we have not seen one since. So the first Great Awakening is what we're talking about here. This is the one that Edwards was so much a part of. Now, it don't don't be mistaken. The first great awakening was not the first revival in local churches. It's called a great awakening because it affected thousands of churches across the eastern seaboard of America, which is all there was of America. Thousands of churches. However, Edwards says that when he came to his church in Northampton, the Congregational Church, the only church in Northampton, 600 communicants uh, in its prime, there had been, he said, five harvests in Solomon Stoddard's ministry, who had been the pastor of that church for 60 years before he came. Can you picture that? A 60-year pastorate. <laughs> Amazing. And during those 60 years... There had been five harvests. 1679, there was a harvest. A harvest meaning the Spirit of God blew. You know, he he blows where he wills, according to John. You don't know where he comes from or where he's going. Such are those who are born of the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God moves on a congregation in an extraordinary way, people are converted, people are revived, people are gathered in, and it may last for a year, two years, Look at this. What, what is so amazing to me and encouraging to me. I mean, you could either let it discourage you. If you're an Eeyore type and the glass is always half empty, you'll be discouraged by this. If you are a bright, optimistic type and the glass is always half full and on its way to being filled, you'll you'll be encouraged by this. But I'm encouraged, even though I tend to be a pessimist <laughs> a lot, but not ultimately. 1679, first harvest. Next harvest. 1683, compute, four years. So there had been a dip. Next harvest. Next harvest. 1696. 13 years. You got one man is the pastor through all this time. So he's been through two harvests. It stops. There's kind of a, a fallow time in the field. And what, what does he do emotionally? How does he hang in there? Does he believe in steady state ministry and, and keeping on, keeping on? Or does he say, oh, we had two flashes in the pan and it's over and I might as well, you know, look for another church or something like that. He keeps on. 1669. Next harvest, 1712. 16 years later. Next harvest, 1718. Six years later. So you got a four-year gap, a 13-year gap, a 16-year gap, and a six-year gap between revivals. That's what we call them, revivals. When the church was blown upon by the Spirit, and there was an awakening, and there was an ingathering from the town, and the church grew. Edwards said that in his father's church in uh, Windsor, Connecticut, he had his first stirrings. How did he put it? Um... The first exercises of soul occurred to me some years before I went to college at a time of remarkable awakening in my father's congregation at East Windsor, Connecticut. So he chalked up his own first awakening. He didn't say it was his conversion yet to a revival that his father's church experienced at East Windsor. I mention that just to say that before 1734, when the Great Awakening begins, There had been other little awakenings along the way in various churches. 
And so as we think about Bethlehem and churches in the Twin Cities and the evangelical movement and what's happening around the world, we, we must avoid at all costs any kind of lockstep paradigm that it has to be, any kind of length that it has to be, any kind of frequency that it has to be. And we're going to see some other things that get blown out of the water here, too, as we move along. I just think we should be constantly, like it says in Luke 18, he told them this parable that they should always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart. Always pray and not lose heart that God would move on your lost relative, would move on someone in the church that is cool and lukewarm, move on a relationship, a marriage relationship that just kind of a coexistence thing and never say, ah, it'll never change. Never, never, never say it'll never change if it's not God's will the way it is. Um, let's see. Here are the reasons why revival in 1734 was so critical. In 1662 in New England, the halfway covenant was established. Let me see if I can put that in my own words, what that was. A council in New England grappled with this problem. The first wave of Puritans come in the 1620s, 30s, and America, as we know it now, is established in New England. The Puritans are there. Now, they're all Calvinists, Puritans, from England trying to get away from oppression. And they're building the city of God on earth, sort of. Most of them are post-millennialists. Edward was a post-millennialist. I'll talk about that a little later. Meaning he believed the kingdom was going to come before Jesus came. And Jesus would come and establish his rule after the millennium was built by the gospel proclamation and spread. And uh, they believed in infant baptism. You baptize your child into the covenant because the visible people of God are the people of God. And as a child is born to Christian parents, that child is part of the visible covenant people of God. And you give him the sign of the covenant, which is baptism, not circumcision anymore. And so that's working until the second generation grows up. And many of them in America had no saving experience of Christ. And the crisis was, do their children get baptized? Do you baptize? What becomes of the covenant community? Everything in New England hangs on the covenant people of God together in a covenant bond. Everything was understood in terms of covenant. And the sign of the covenant was baptism. And children born into the covenant received the sign. And suddenly a generation emerges who don't, quote, own the covenant experientially, just externally. We will come to church. We will not steal and kill and cheat on our wives, but we don't have any saving experience of Jesus Christ like we hear you preaching about. Do you baptize their children? The halfway covenant said, we'll settle this by, yes, going halfway. Baptize the children. This is the third generation now getting baptized, born to unbelieving covenant members. This is one of the problems with infant baptism. You have to talk like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a Baptist because I don't buy some of this. you got unbelieving covenant members whose children are now being baptized as a sign of the covenant, but whose parents cannot eat at the Lord's table. It's halfway. Halfway. You, you, you'll take their children, you give them a sign of covenant, but they cannot have communion and don't have voting privileges. Well, now what that did... 
according to the things that I read, was create generations of unbelievers in the church, in the church. So Robert Pope, one historian, said, by the turn of the century, that is 1700, purity had been largely sacrificed to community. Purity had been largely sacrificed to community. One of the reasons Roger Williams founded Rhode Island is because he couldn't buy this. He couldn't, he was the Baptist, he just couldn't see his way through to uh, building a Christian community around unbelieving covenant members. Here's an amazing quote from Jonathan Edwards' grandfather, who was the 60-year pastor, who went further than the halfway covenant and said, you don't have to be a believer even to eat the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is a converting ordinance. This is the church that Jonathan Edwards moved into. In 1709, Stoddard announced, quote, Visible sainthood has nothing to do with the inward grace of conversion. That's Jonathan Edwards' grandfather. Visible sainthood, meaning a visible outward participation in the covenant life of the community, has nothing to do with inner conversion. You must at all costs, and he saw, he saw, if we lose this, if the Baptists turn out to be right, the whole thing is shattered. The whole community coherence is shattered and you, you you disintegrate into a bunch of individualistic Baptist churches, which is, in fact, what happened in America. I mean, there are downsides of being a Baptist. There is a kind of individualism. I grew up in the South. If you didn't like the pastor, you start reading Creek Baptist Church down the street and get yourself a preacher boy. It's, it's just the, the Baptist scheme of independence and the local church being its own autonomy and the loss of this large sense of, of covenant community in the wider is not all good. I just think it's a little closer to the biblical ideal than, <laughs> than Jonathan Edwards was and the Puritans who came over. That's why I've never been able to be persuaded not to be one and why I'm the pastor of a Baptist church. So one of the preparations for uh, the revival was this massive nominalism in the churches. Okay, here's the second thing, and this is a little more controversial, but the very controversialness of it is significant. Arminianism was the word that Edwards used as the doctrinal threat to the life of the community. But now what he meant by Arminianism and what was being bandied about by Arminianism over against Calvinism in those days was not merely a kind of strict list of doctrines. You get five Arminian points and you get five Calvinistic points. Not so much that as a spirit and an attitude that goes like this. It had less to do with Jacobus Arminius than with a mood of rising confidence in man's ability to gain some purchase on the divine favor by human endeavor. Or another writer described the, 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 the change from Puritanism inside the, the covenant theology like this. A native, and he doesn't mean Indian, he just means uh, endemic or natural, an American variety of human self-sufficiency which expressed itself still within the forms of covenant theology. So what Edward smelled in 1734, that he called Arminianism, what he smelled was a, a rising tide of human self-confidence, 
self-confidence and a weakening of the despair of our total depravity before God and a, a beginning, a getting the nose of the camel in the door of the tent of there is something we can contribute to our salvation here. That's what he smelled and that's what he began to preach against and Amazingly, now this this blows some of my preconceptions of revival out of the water. It was his controversial preaching that unleashed the revival. In 1738, looking back on the 34-35 revival, it lasted about two years. He put together five sermons and published them, which he said were the key human components that unleashed the revival. Let me list them. Number one, justification by faith alone. All these are grouped together in volume one in the, in the first uh, volume of works. Justification by faith alone. Number two, pressing into the kingdom of God. Number three, Ruth's resolution. Number four, the justice of God in the damnation of sinners. And five, the excellency of Jesus Christ. It was especially number one. This is what he said. In the beginning of the late work of God. Now notice the word late. Already in 1730, when's he writing this? Eight. Actually, it was early. I think it was somewhere he, he calls it. Oh, when, when he's describing in the faithful narrative the, the recent revival, he calls it the late work of God. So in 1736 already, it's a late work. It's over. And we'll see why it ended in a minute. The beginning of the late work of God in this place was so circumstanced that I could not but look upon it as a remarkable testimony of God's approbation, God's approval of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He said, I view the revival as an evidence of God's approval of the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which he preached into a controversial situation where he thought it was being called into question. So here, let me just mention a couple of implications at this point for revival today and and back then. Number one, awakening came on the wings of highly doctrinal preaching. It came on the wings of highly doctrinal preaching. That is not present today. Now, you might conclude from that, therefore, we can't have a great awakening, or therefore, uh, the awakening that comes from that preaching is not true awakening. Well, I think that would be a non sequitur. I think what... I would say, as I read about, and I have not sat under much of the preaching at the Toronto Blessing, say, or in Melbourne, or in New Zealand, or in Britain, but from what I hear, it's not this kind of preaching. It's not heavily doctrinal preaching. In fact, the half dozen sermons I have sat under in the third wave over the last five years that are preludes to ministry times are impatient, let's get to the real thing kind of sermons. The real thing being hands-on prayer for people. To treat a sermon as a quick prelude to the real thing is not good. So my conclusion is not that Toronto is not of God, but to say, yellow flag folks, There is a defect here. There's a defect when the word of God starts to diminish in its importance, in its truthfulness, in its biblical rootedness. Just be discerning. 
because you've got great vulnerability at that point. That's that's implication number one. Implication number two, and this one surprised me as I thought about it. Unity in the body of Christ is not a prerequisite of revival. Now, the reason I stress this is because I'm amazed at the confidence with which I read certain books and articles to say, until the pastors of this church are united and praying together, there will be no revival. Now, that may be true. It's just not necessarily true. And the reason it's not necessarily true, very simply, is we need revival to make that happen. That is revival. How in the world are more than, I mean, we've been working at this for about 10 years in the Twin Cities with the prayer movement, trying to pull pastors together, and the best we can do is 80 out of 1,200, say. Um, this is a call for revival. And the reason I have a, a misgiving about the way it's stated is that it smacks of measures that humans can accomplish to get God to move. Now, if we pastors do the right things, if we get together in the right ways, if we spend the right amount of time, God will then be obliged to, boom, fall on the, the Twin Cities. Well, frankly, God is free to fall or not to fall anytime he chooses, and I want him to fall now to help me love pastors and to help them love me and to get us together praying the way we ought to pray. But historically, the reason I say this is that the church at Sunderland was a church propagating a defective view of justification by faith, and Edwards did not get along with this pastor. He thought he was wrong, and he preached against him. And listen, this is what he wrote. By the noise that had uh, a little before, now he's talking about the revival. The revival fell in, in 1734, his people began to be awakened amazingly, and he says, by the noise that had a little before been raised in this country concerning that doctrine of justification by faith, people here seem to have their minds put into an unusual ruffle. The following discourse of justification that was preached at two public lectures seemed to be remarkably blessed, so that this was the doctrine on which this work uh, in its beginning was Founded, although great fault was found with me for meddling with the controversy in the pulpit by such a person. And at that time, and though it was ridiculed by many elsewhere, yet it proved to be a word spoken in season here and was most evidently attended with a very remarkable blessing of heaven to the souls of the people. In other words, in his day, people were saying, Edwards, if you get up and preach on justification by faith over against the Sunderland Church over there in Sunderland, Massachusetts, you will do nothing but create strife and division in the Christian church. Now, I don't know the spirit in which he preached it. I, I hope it was winsome and gentle and loving, saying, come on in. But however he did it, God blessed it. God blessed it. He blessed the preaching of truth, even though it looked like it was a, here's the line drawn, and that's a mistaken way to think about justification by faith. And the Great Awakening flowed in that context of controversy. So when I read, I could name the book, that... Before that revival will come to the Twin Cities, this measure of pastors have to get together and agree on this. I say, this is a human prerequisite. 
being elevated here for God to move. The first awakened souls um, were young people. This is, this is another implication we could get. Young people had a tremendous influence and, and, and uh, they were affected deeply. He said in, in, in the end of 70, uh, end of 33, 1733, there was a growing seriousness among the youth and frivolous uh, people were being made earnest and a young woman professed faith that had a dramatic impact in the fall of 1734 and religious concern suddenly gripped the whole of the town. Within six months, more than 300 persons ranging in age from four to above 70 had testified to a lively hope of having been savingly brought wrought upon. That's 300 people. He's got 600 in his church. 300 people in that town. Most everybody was in the church, in the town. Those were the effects. Here's, here's the way he described some of the, some of the effects. Old converts were revived. Contentions abated. See, you don't get the cart before the horse here. Exercises of public worship were enlivened. Religion became everybody's chief engagement. The town seemed to be full of the presence of God. It never was so full of love, nor so full of joy as it was then. There were remarkable tokens of God's presence in almost every house. And then he says he could name 32 other villages where the same thing was happening. God used calamities to help stir it up. Uh, In uh, April of 1734... He says, a very sudden and awful death of a young man in the bloom of his youth uh, much affected many of the young people, followed with the death of another young married woman who had been considerably exercised in mind about the salvation of her soul. So God will use uh, events. That's why when I when I hear about the Kobe earthquake, when I hear about a monsoon, when I hear about a volcano, when I hear about a, when I was in, in Pensacola under the hurricane, one of the things I was praying was awaken this city, awaken this city, cause them to feel their finitude and their frailty and their helplessness as human beings and make them deal with eternity. God uses natural calamities to bring people to a serious frame of mind. Why did it end so suddenly? 1735. March 25th, Thomas Stebbins, a man of unstable mind, attempted suicide. Then, on June 1st, Joseph Hawley, Northampton's leading merchant and Jonathan Edwards' uncle, cut his throat and died on Sunday morning. This broke the work to a significant degree because the effect was deranging with people hearing voices about cutting their throats. Edwards talked about this he said this is so decisively ended the revival in 1735 in his church because this happened on Sunday morning. It was the chief merchant. It was his uncle. The church was just clobbered with the shock of it. He had been a man who was in, out of a family of depressed people. But the ongoing effect was that people began to hear voices cut your throat who had not had any kind of mental instability before. J.E.'s own assessment is this. These are his words. Satan seems to be in a great rage at this extraordinary breaking forth of the work of God. I hope it is because he knows that his time is short. There was a lapse then, 1736 roughly, for four years in his church, nothing extraordinary happening, the ongoing steady state work of the ministry, and then 
the catalyst of the second peace for him, 1740 to 42 roughly, was George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the, the golden-tongued evangelist from England, and George Garrick, the Shakespearean actor, said that he would give all the gold in England if he could say Mesopotamia the way George Whitfield did. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he came six times to America and was part of fanning the flame that swept up and down the seacoast from Georgia to Maine during those 15 years after 1735. And he came and he preached in Edwards' pulpit, and Edwards sat in the front pew and said, was in a flood of tears the whole time listening to this man of God speak. And the church began to be awakened again. And then the most famous sermon of all that Edwards ever preached was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was preached on July 8, 1741, not in his own church, but in Enfield, which was just a horse ride up the river a little ways. And this is the report that he gave, or that an eyewitness gave. The assembly appeared deeply impressed and bowed down with an awful conviction of their sin and danger. There was such a breathing of distress and weeping that the preacher was obliged to speak to the people and desire silence that he might be heard. So there was this, this weeping and crying out, and Edwards had to say, please be quiet so that I can finish my, my message. Now, what gave rise to Edwards' uh, examination of the revival? He wrote four books to assess the revival was the excesses that he saw and the controversy they elicited. For example, this is a quote, one kind of excess. In an Ipswich diary, there's a description of a meeting in which a man cried out, come to Christ, come to Christ, without intermission for half an hour. An old woman on the back seat denounced lawyers for an equal space of half an hour. And in boisterous rivalry, a man was preaching over her head. So you got here a man saying, come to Christ, 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 nonstop for half an hour, heard denouncing lawyers for half an hour, and over her head a man preaching about something else, all happening at the same time in one uh, crazy service. So Edwards sees these things and many others. And the first thing he wrote was a narrative of the surprising work of God, a narrative, a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God in November of 1736. That's when it was published. Isaac Watts published it in England, the hymn writer. John Wesley published it in 1744. And the reason he wanted these things published is this. Now, this is relates very closely to the to the college revivals in our own day. Here's what he said. There is no one thing that I know of that God has made such a means of promoting this work among us as the news of others' conversions. That's an amazing statement. No one thing. He says that above preaching, evidently. He says no one thing has God used more to promote the work of revival than the spreading of news to other churches of what's happening in conversion here or there. And that's exactly the way it happens through the colleges last fall. One group will go to another college and say, down in Wheaton, such and such was happening. Or down in Texas, such and such was happening. And let's pray. And something else would would happen. It seems like God ordains that the spread of good news about his work somewhere also helps that power to come somewhere else. 
Well, let me see if I can wrap this up in two or three minutes here. Shoot to be done at quarter, quarter after. The other two books, three books that he wrote were the, the Yale Commencement Address in 1741, The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. And he tried to analyze what's a work of the spirit and what's a work of the flesh. The third book was Thoughts Concerning the Revival, uh, 1742. He, he uh, published this, or three is published, Boston, March 1743. And then the most important one, Treatise Concerning the Religious Affections. That's his mature, comprehensive treatment, 1746, when it was all over. He was preaching those sermons in 1742 and 43. Um, I'm just trying to think what to pick here from what I have left that I can't cover. With regard to physical manifestations, let me say a word about that. People were falling down, they were fainting, they were crying out, they were groaning under these revivals. And Edwards uh, says, "'Tis a great fault in us to limit a sovereign, all-wise God whose judgments are a great deep and his ways past finding out where he has not limited himself." And in things concerning which he has not told us what is what his way shall be. So he says, if you don't find in the scriptures, thou shalt not fall down under conviction of sin or thou shalt not fall down under the weight of the Holy Spirit. You may not stand up and say, don't do that, or it may not be done or it's unbiblical to do it or it's wrong. He goes on and he says, the design of the scripture is to teach us divinity, not physic and anatomy. If Christ had been had seen it needful in order to the church's safety, he doubtless would have given ministers rules to judge of bodily effects and would have told them how the pulse should beat under such and such religious exercises of mind. When men should look pale and when they should shed tears and when they should tremble and whether or no they should ever faint or cry out or whether their bodies should ever be put into convulsions. If ministers thoroughly did their duty as watchmen and overseers of the state of the frame of men's souls and of their voluntary conduct according to the rules he had given them in the Bible, his church would be well provided for as to its safety in these physical matters. Outcries, faintings, bodily effects are no certain evidence of the Spirit of God, but maybe, especially if the effect is from the display of spiritual things in the preaching worthy of the effect. Now, there is a important criterion. Is the effect that is coming over a person owing to a display of spiritual things? Edwards goes on, it has all along been God's manner to open new scenes to bring forth to view things new and wonderful, such as eye has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man or angels to the astonishment of earth and heaven. Maybe there'll be another chance. I'll weave it into a sermon or something. I've got about two more pages on Edwards and uh, how he handled errors in judgment in the revival and how an error in judgment can be promoted by authentic love for God. So you think about that, but I'm going to close in prayer before we go. Father, take these few reminiscences here about this man, imperfect as he was and as we are, and use him and use our memories of your great work in those days and use this time 
and use this church and use this season to awaken people to the glory of God, to be rid with sin and done with compromise and to walk all out for you. As we move to worship now, Lord, may we go in the spirit that you supply, that in everything you may get the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.